Hello and welcome to the sixth and final episode of Acting Up, the Fans Against Criminalisation podcast. I'm Liam O'Hare and on this episode I'll be joined with the regular guests from Fans Against Criminalisation, Jeanette Finlay and Paul Quigley, as well as journalist Andrew McFadgen, who has covered this issue significantly in the past. So there's one question to be put as a result of today's business. The question is that motion 10790 in the name of James Kelly on the offensive behaviour of football and threatening communications repeal Scotland Bill at stage 3 be agreed. Are we all agreed? No. We're not agreed. We'll move to a vote and members may cast their votes now. The result of the vote on motion 10790 in the name of James Kelly, yes, 62, no, 60, there were no abstentions, the motion is agreed, and the offensive behaviour at football and threatening communications repeal Scotland Bill is passed. That concludes decision time. Presiding Officer Ken McIntosh in the Scottish Parliament after the Offensive Behaviour at Football Act was repealed. And then that was also Finder uh, by Nine Toes, remixed by the Standing Section at Celtic Park. Um, so, Paul Quigley, uh, I will begin with yourself. Re- act, uh, the Act has been repealed now. How do you feel? Delighted, uh, relieved, um, still a bit kind of lost for words in some respects. Um, you know, we obviously took a kind of bus through to Parliament on the day. Um, you know, I don't think Jeanette appeared on the telly quite as much this time, but we were all sitting there watching it. Um, and what a feeling it was uh, when the, the vote was kind of called out uh, by uh, Ken McIntosh. Um, and then there was a wee bit of kind of light applause, not quite nine toes, never did jump about mad. But it was still enough to uh, get James Dornan to be kind of demanding security run over and shush people. Uh, but no, it's it less than a minute, and I'm mentioning a James Dornan. Well, uh, Oh, that that's some, a record even for me. <laughs> uh, but no, what what I did it was it was it was brilliant, and then you know we had like the, the kind of champagne in the bus back and stuff. Somebody forgot to put it in the fridge, but I'll no name who that was, Janet. And uh, I we ended up going back to the pub after it, and it was. It was just kind of it was surreal in a lot of ways, um, but you know we'd been working hard for it, and um, it was uh, kind of we hoped it would be, I guess. And Jeanette, the end of a, a long um, but now successful campaign. I, I mean, I think it will actually take some time, you know, probably months, maybe even longer than that, to really sink in the enormity of what we achieved. I mean, Paul talked about on the day when the, the third reading went through and the, and, and, and the bill, uh, that vote went through. And it was incredible because you were sort of sitting there thinking, like, what's the right reaction to this? You know, there was a, such a mixture of, you know, it was emotional, I'm, you know, I wouldn't uh, be shy admitting that. It was emotional, you know, and a mixture of emotion and, you know, just delight and relief and all of those kinds of things. I mean, I don't know um, uh, what kind of state Paul's leg was because I was sitting right next to him and, 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 I, and I gripped his knee just at the last minute, you know, and I don't know whether he went him or bruised or, or whatever that. So, so it was, I mean, you just didn't know what to, how to quite, and there was lots of hugging and lots of, uh, you know, really just incredible mm-hmm. relief. Mm-hmm. 
and, and pride. I'm so proud of our community and our people for what they did. So proud of the fact that they kept at it all this time. And that's the bit that keeps coming back to me because that just shows you that, you know, when you're united like that, when you're facing a common enemy, you can achieve anything you like. And it might take a bit of time, but you'll get there. Um, so. Brilliant. Andrew, just to, to bring you in on this, you're somebody who's covered this act from its inception. You covered, I think, one of the more notorious incidents that happened uh, at the Gallagate with, with many people arrested um, there as well. Looking back and looking at the, the campaign, like, what, do you, what do you make of it? Well, I remember when I first started writing about this, speaking to uh, the late George Ryan, the Labour councillor here in Glasgow, one of the good guys, and he said to me, look, a war is being waged against working class football fans. Well, what happened in Parliament was the working class football fans won. Now, how great is that? How often can you talk about Scotland's recent past and say the working class football fans won? Everybody who was involved in that campaign should be incredibly proud of themselves. It's not simply about parliamentary action. Parliamentary action married to a people's campaign. What stopped the, the backsliding was that the 20,000 emails for fans against criminalisation organised to be sent to MSPs. It's probably the best and most successful popular people's campaign since devolution. Mm -hmm. and, and that is on the, the statute books as well. That is the first uh, act that's been repealed, Paul, of a, of a sitting parliament, uh, Scottish sitting Scottish parliament, essentially. Like, there's the magnitude of that. Like, has it has it sunk in? Do you think? No, probably not. Um, you know, we've sat here and kind of spoke about that before. You know that uh, the Scottish Parliament hadn't ever, you know, uh, repealed legislation that itself had enacted in that time. Uh, but the truth is, I guess you know it'll maybe take a few months beyond that to kind of understand the significance of what's been achieved. Uh, and Jeanette's right. You know, everybody um, who has supported the campaign, everybody who has played their part uh, from attending demonstrations in the early days to taking part in email campaigns to donating uh, to fight legal battles the Celtic support and football supporters generally um, have backed us magnificently and it's because of that support it's because of that um you know, groundswell support that we could tap into um, that enabled us to, to kind of push it to where we are and everybody can be really proud of it I mean, when Andrew says, you know, you know, quotes uh, for George Ryan, God rest them, uh, you know, that they've waged war on working class football fans, that's absolutely right. In 2011, they decided to pick a fight. Now, why they picked a fight, that can all be analysed. We have analysed, we've talked about it, why they decided it was us. But basically, whatever the reasons were, they thought we were an easy target. They actually thought that they could do this and that we would have no nothing against it. And I mean, who would criticise them for that? This was a majority government and a parliament that was never meant to have a majority. They had a, a majority. They were riding high. They literally thought, you know, and you had Housewees, you know, his new unified national yeah. police force. You had the whole thing, and they literally thought they could ride roughshod over the top of this. And when you think about the nature of the campaign that that we fought, 
I mean, we had protests in grounds, we had protests outside in civic spaces, we were lobbying parties in their conferences, we had private meetings with all the parties, we had the email campaigns Andrew's talked about, we organised complaints against the police, against the prosecutors, against the Scottish court system, we conducted persistent you know, social media campaigns, we came up with creative ideas, like getting a song that people were charged <laughs> with singing to very near the top of the download charts for Scotland, pretty high for the UK as well. We'd petitions to the Scottish Parliament, which gave us more publicity and space to make our case. We wrote for fanzines, we wrote for the alternative media, we did football podcasts, as well as wrote for broadsheets, we gave interviews to mainstream television, we gave, you know, on radio stations, we spoke to anybody and everybody who would listen to us. We collected analyse statistics, we completely ripped apart our pitiful attempts at showing public support through polls which were biased in their questions and, and skewed in their interpretation. We taunted and baited MSPs who, you know, who tried to defeat us by either ignoring us or lying about us. We acted as a conduit for all the video clips of police officers. You've seen them all, all the clips where police officers were misbehaving and we put them out there in social media. We haunted them and we them for seven years and we made it absolutely clear we weren't going away. If there was a thread hanging loose on any argument or any process, we pulled on it and we kept pulling it to see if it would where it would take us. And that's where it took us. And it was that relentlessness tied in with the ingenuity, the ideas that we were using, which must, you know, you go back and you can hardly believe now that we did it. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I mean, you're saying that we couldn't believe. I think that's one of the things we've sat here and spoke about the parliamentary arithmetic, and a lot of people have maybe have thought that you know the march towards repeal was almost inevitable because you know the numbers backed it. But I think the reaction of a lot of the SNP MSPs on the day demonstrated <laughs> that they, they really, up until you know that vote was called, they couldn't believe that football fans were going to get one over the Scottish government like that. And you just need to look at some of the. Um, ways in which people behaved they yeah. couldn't believe it and they still can't believe it uh, and I guess to some extent you know, maybe neither can we but here we are We've well, got to remember talk about the arithmetic the SNP needed to get one MSP, yeah. just one mm -hmm. to change their mm -hmm. mind uh, from the other parties mm -hmm. and yeah, what kept that strong was the popular campaign, mm -hmm. the pressure mm -hmm. and the strength of feeling mm -hmm. and not just the strength of feeling but the credibility of the yeah. evidence that mm -hmm. was brought before the Parliament Absolutely. And Andrew, you've obviously covered that like, you've been a journalist, I guess, for many years for both national and international uh, broadcasters. Presumably in that time you've covered many campaigns, many of which have probably been unsuccessful. What stood out in this campaign um, from others and that's led to, led to its success? I think what stood out about this campaign was the marriage of fan activism. Football clubs, by their very nature, bring people together. They can be tribal, they can be community-based, but they're more than just people kicking a ball in the field. They're a, a statement of who we are. And in the case of this campaign, you tapped into that network. You brought together uh, not just the Celtic supporters, but supporters of 
many different clubs. I, mean, I spoke to Rangers supporters, I spoke to supporters of clubs like Hamilton when I was uh, writing. It's not just a Celtic campaign, but I think effectively what was done is it was married to action in Parliament. And um, to me, I was speaking to James Kelly this afternoon, uh, who brought that legislation back, and he said it's, it's a positive example when you've got positive action married to parliamentary action. You can take a draconian law off the statute book. You can show that getting involved makes a difference. Indeed, and hopefully it will act as, as an inspiration, I guess, for other campaigns in, in Scottish society and, and wider than that as well, for perhaps for football fans in general. Paul, is that something as well that obviously there's been football fans up and down, not just Scotland, but perhaps the UK that have, that have seen this, that have seen fans getting together from different clubs. Do you think this can act as an example of fans' mobilisation going forward? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, uh, you would say that there's, there's fan campaigns that have been waged, uh, waged kind of over Europe, you know, over different things. So like the Tessera uh, in Italy, uh, ID cards in Turkey, um, in terms of pyrotechnics in Scandinavia and so on, um, ticket prices and you know, uh, the UK and, and standing seems to be one of the, the main things uh, as well, particularly in England, trying to follow uh, in the footsteps footsteps of Celtic um, I think that Andrew's absolutely right that football clubs can naturally pro- provide a kind of platform allow people to come together um, and, and kind of work in a positive way um, I don't know that you know, before we came along, I don't know that there would have been that example, maybe, of... of I, I guess so, I mean, it's a different thing uh, entirely, I guess, but you look at, like, the the kind of tireless work of the Hillsborough Justice campaigners, you know, they, they've been on for, you know, decades uh, in their pursuit of truth and justice, um, and, you know, were having some real success because they were, again, you know, I, I think they were kind of able to go on... Um, you know the strong community there in Liverpool, and tie it in with um, factions within within the the British Parliament within Westminster. Um, so hopefully it can provide some sort of a, a an inspiration and, and provide some sort of a, a blueprint almost um, for you know either fan groups uh, in terms of fan activism or uh, just uh, political groups, social groups who uh, have their own cause uh, that they wish to pursue and um, can maybe look at some of the tactics we've used, some of the ways that we've tapped in um, to you know the anger and frustration of people and gave it a voice um, and hopefully they, they can maybe do likewise. It's worth picking up on the example you give of uh, tireless campaigning on behalf of the 96 people who died in Hillsborough. Um, If there's a common thread, it's the demand for respect. A lot of the literature around about Hillsborough describes the situation, and any of us who attended football matches in the 1980s and 90s can remember this, where the police looked at every situation through the prism of hooliganism, um, not through the prism of safety. And one of the ways in which this legislation um, has actually made, I think, in my view, supporters less safe mm-hmm. is that it's encouraged a breakdown of trust between fans and the police, mm-hmm. where you need police and supporters to work together. Instead, uh, we've seen a confrontational style of policing. Um, 
we've seen fans uh, subject to harassment. In some cases, you know, words have been used like fuggery to decide the actions of the police. Well, where you've got that kind of tension between the supporters and the people who are there to ensure safety, the relationship doesn't work properly. And so, um, you know, it's a good thing that that's been challenged. And I think there need to be lessons learned out of this for everybody involved yeah. in Scottish football. Thing about you know the political nature of what was achieved because undoubtedly if you have a campaign which is about to remove a piece of legislation that's a political campaign and yet we're a group of people for whom politics is meant to be too dangerous for us to have you know so it's ironic really that you know a lot of people talk about oh the, you know politics and sports don't mix and and we shouldn't have politics and UEFA saying no we can't have political activity or expressions of political beliefs and we can't have all that and yet when you think about a football club exactly in the way that you've described the thing about you know community and identity and togetherness and, and all of that stuff combined with all the amassed collective talent of uh, any large group of people um, we're ideally placed um, you know, to engage in political campaigns and the notion that somehow, and it's to do with the thuggery as well, it's too, we, it's too dangerous for us to be involved in politics because we won't conduct it in a nice, safe way in the same way that, you know... Um, What's his face? He used to be the Justice Minister. He's a knob dinner. What do you call that man? Kenny McCaskill. Forgotten his name there. Uh, Kenny McCaskill tried to have a go at Paul. And one of the things he was saying was, you know, people have... And he was being dug up about, you know, what a hypocrite he was because he wanted a, 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 a statue to James Conley, which I hope we end up with. But, you know, and we said, it's one thing, you know, for people to engage in political debates. It's quite another for football fans to be offensive. And you're thinking, right, so you've decided that when you do something, that's political and that's safe and that's okay because that's nice and middle class and quiet. But if we do it, we'll be inflamed and, you know, somehow no be able to control ourselves. So I would say a lot of political political parties and organisations must look at what we did and what the Hillsborough people did and actually be desperate to be in that situation to be able to kind of use that resource but it doesn't just happen like that, it has to be organic, it has to come for us, so mm -hmm. but it is ironic the whole keep politics out of sport thing isn't it? Well we see the cases again and again don't we, again we spoke Pep Guardiola a few, a few weeks ago as one example that, that I think uh, your friend James Donning got behind Paul but I think what, one of the questions that, that some of the listeners might want to know is to you, uh, Ed, to yourself Paul and, and Jeanette that after this long campaign where are the efforts going next? You know, what's the next thing to be repealed is breach of the peace. So where, like, what else can we expect to see challenged? This question's banned, and I can't answer this question anymore. Um, is, is this on a personal level, or what? Me and Jeanette going to like tag team to like come up with some tackle some other piece of legislation or issue? Well, maybe you don't want to give the game away. You know, if the Scottish well, Justice Department's listening, you know. But um, the truth is, I don't. I mean. Well, we're not quite there yet, I guess, in terms of some aspects of the campaign, because obviously people, some people's cases are still uh, ongoing. Um, now we know that the calculator fiscal service are, are beginning to change um, in terms of the kind of attacked in terms of cases. So um, we know that from the fifteenth, um, that the 
uh, letters are sent to the kind of logo to Scotland that'll be four weeks they've got to respond and then from that point it's sent to um, the Queen <laughs> to uh, to sign it well um, <laughs> who else and uh, the, so I mean but we're still probably talking you know it'll be maybe the end of the month that it'll be give or take um, and there's the issue of, of then you know if the crown starts changing uh, to you know breach of peace section 38 that kind of thing so we've still got cases to uh, oversee we've still got people to help um, we're also not under any sort of kind of delusion that uh, the culture of policing is going to just change overnight uh, we understand that it's going to be a gradual process we understand that uh, I think there may maybe a kind of rolling back um, of certain well I would certainly hope um, of certain stuff that you see from them but you know time will tell um, and then from that point um, you know the, the kind of fans against criminalisation can, uh, can maybe have a wee look and see where we go as an organisation but I would think for now there will be at least some loose structure there even if we don't have to be as, as hands on certainly in the campaigning aspect as, as we have been up until now yeah, well, we still actually formally still have the appeals of the uh, Amsterdam ones, so the Dam boys. So they'll obviously have to, you know, the bank account is a matter of formality. We'll have to keep that going. We'll have yeah. to wait and see when they go for their appeals. So that's that still sits. So I think that's right. I think there'll be a kind of a, you know, at some point we'll kind of fall back into sort of a skeleton structure just to deal with those issues and just to see how things go. And certainly, um, you know, we do need to look at what, how, where the police are going to go. We'll maybe talk a bit later on about where the government might go with some of this stuff, and so we, we need to, to think about that. But on a, on a sort of a personal level, you know, uh, 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 mm-hmm. you might have said that in all seriousness. Other people have like approached us and said, "Well, would you you're starting to sort of like you know give us a wish list of campaigns that we might like to take up?" And you're thinking, "Excuse me, <laughs> I don't think so." I was thinking I could maybe, um, you know, I don't know, uh, have, a, have a have a social life occasionally or something like that. Anyway, I mean, obviously, I'd like every football club in Scotland to be a living wage employer, and I think you're a woman to make it happen. There we go. <laughs> no, well, can I just say? Celtic already, although it's not accredited, it does pay the living wage, and that was the Celtic Trust. We've already done that, but it's up to other fans to to, to lead that campaign, I think. But there are other campaigns, there's stuff going on around Celtic. I'm obviously involved in the Celtic Trust, there are things that I would want to get back involved in around that. Um, there's the um, Memorial to Angor Tamor, which I'm involved in, and a few people who are involved in, so that's something, a really positive thing. That's something that we're not just trying to push back and, and and, and get us back into a position that we used to be in. So it's not a defensive thing. This would be a nice, positive thing. So that's, that's a good thing for people yeah. to get involved in. Uh, I'm currently still involved in a, a very important industrial dispute, which is uh, ongoing to defend our pensions and defend you know publicly funded higher education. So there's lots of things going on. But I don't think you run... And there is another thing which... And this podcast and these series of podcasts has been important in recording some of this. But actually, you know, I think somebody needs to write this up. Mm-hmm. And I think I think yeah. we probably will have a go at doing that, mm-hmm. to, to write this up and try and, you know, pull that all together before we, you know, Paul goes off to 
make his living and you know <laughs> do whatever it is young people do. I'm just looking for retirement <laughs> myself, but you know. Um, so that that is something that needs to be needs to so be. So you'll not be joining the Cape Crusader, Mister Dornan, and his fight against sectarianism then, no? no? You, you, you can't be stopped. You know, you can't. You can't. We can. We can. We can bring. You're getting five minutes to have a kick at James Dornan. Let's go, right? I'm counting. No, this is too much pressure. Now. No, we can talk about Dornan a bit later, but um, I think for now we can just enjoy the victory we've had um, and we can go on to uh, a few other things in terms of where the debate around sectarianism and you know the link with football and the definition and uh, the bracketal review and all of that stuff we can maybe get on to a bit later. Well that's actually perfectly set up for us there Paul so thank you for that because we've <laughs> now got a clip from uh, Danny Boyle uh, who is uh, from Bemis Scotland um, I spoke to him a little bit earlier um, about the Offensive Behaviour of Football Act but more importantly about what is the future um, uh, in terms of the Brackadale review and also what is uh, the issue of, of sectarianism in Scotland and how is that actually going to be tackled uh, in the future so that's it for part one uh, stay tuned and we'll be back with part two in a few minutes uh, thanks for joining us on Acting Up can you begin by telling us a little bit about Bemis uh, as an organisation yeah, no problem, afternoon, Liam. Um, so Bemis is an organisation we're set up when the Parliament was reconvened uh, in 1999-2000. Um, and essentially their role, which has, has, has evolved depending on the, the um, legislative or social dynamics, which may uh, affect Scotland at any given time. But the basic principle of the role is to act as an intermediary between a uh, decision maker b- between parliament government uh, and and raise awareness of um issues which affect diverse ethnic and cultural minority communities in scotland the communities who, who we would identify under that then uh, we would take from uh, in a domestic sense would be the definition uh, of race within the equality act uh, which is a piece of UK legislation and that's pretty much um, taken directly from the International Convention and the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, um, which is obviously an international treaty which governs and uh, clues within the title. Now, Article 1 of that is, is quite broad in terms of it recognises cultural minorities and ethnicity and identity and race in its broadest sense. So in Scotland, those communities uh, the largest by nationality is Polish um, in terms of identifiable within the stats, but within the, the, the census stats, but obviously we'd be aware um, from our uh, knowledge within the communities that there's a significant multi-generational Irish community in Scotland, which has you know, arrived here from the, from the famine period onwards, uh, and then later waves of migration from South Asia, Pakistani, and then a uh, significant increase in African communities over the last decade. Um, so it's quite a comprehensive um, group of um, individuals who are, who are modern Scottish citizens. And obviously the, the Bemis were involved in submissions um, regarding the offensive behaviour at Football Act, but what, what, what were those submissions and, and why, um, why, is this some, why was this something that, that, that kind of related to, to the work of Bemis? So initially when I became aware of the, the, the Offensive Behaviour Act, I was working at the time uh, for an organisation called the Irish Heritage Foundation who were funded via the Irish government's uh, immigrant support programme. 
And basically what we did was we at the time we helped uh, develop St Patrick's Festival. We ran a uh, music project in Govan Hill. We ran uh, outreach uh, isolation projects for the Irish elderly uh, in different areas of the city. And uh, the, the Offensive Behaviour Act um, was raised uh, by our membership at that time, our members of the Irish Heritage Foundation, alongside organisations who we were working with within the Irish community, so Quiltus, Couturier, and um, Gaelic Athletic Association, Cunningham Regalia, uh, some Celtic supporters groups as well. Uh, and, it, and it related to... Um, there had always been a, a concern within the community generally around about the sectarianisation of aspects of Irish identity, i.e. the Irish tricolour or Gaelic football tops or songs which pertain to um, you know, h- historical moments in Irish history, some of which are politically contested um, but valid nonetheless as enshrined within the Good Friday Agreement. And that in Scotland there was a social narrative um, which primarily discussed those cultural components as being expressions of sectarianism. And what we saw within uh, the Offensive Behaviour Act in Section 1 to E, via the cause of general offensiveness, was that we were now going to go beyond not only the, the insult of those cultural components being talked about as sectarian, but they were actually going to become criminal in certain circumstances as well. So it was a regression uh, in terms of community cohesion and raising awareness of the different facets of, of how people perceive each other. So, so also around about that time, 2010, 2011, uh, we became members of BEMIS as that umbrella representative organisation. Um, so as you know, chance would have it in terms of own personal employment trajectory. I ended up working for Bemis at the start of January 2014, um, and we continued to receive uh, submissions and concerns from various aspects of the Irish community in Scotland with regards to the, the implementation of the Offensive Behaviour Act, but also the general societal narrative which accompanied it, and that, and that was pretty much encapsulated within Irish heritage in Scotland being characterised as heritage in Scotland being characterised as sectarian. And obviously Bemis um, did then, I believe, oppose the act um, and, and have, have done all the way through um, its, its, its kind of period before it was repealed, obviously very recently. Um, Bemis was though, one of the few, I believe, equality organisations to do so. Were you surprised at the, the stances taken by some of the other organisations representing equality groups in Scotland? Um, I mean, each, again, when we were talking about equality organisations and the characteristics, there's various characteristics which are, are given protection by um, or enhanced focus via the Equality Act. Now, even those characteristics of religion, race, uh, sexual, sexual orientation, um, gender, so on and so forth, they in themselves are not a homogenous uh, group, self, a group of you know, uh, they don't all share the same uh, interests. They may take a particular analysis on, it, uh, analysis on any given subject. So, I can't, um, you know, I can't, I can't speak from their own perspective. Groups obviously took their own analysis with regards to the Offence Behaviour Act, but we were very firm in terms of what the evidence was suggesting to us that we had concerns with regards to the acts. Um, 
coherence with regards to his Human Rights Act um, and with the, you know, aforementioned points with regards to equality and how communities are perceived and discussed within Scotland, there was very clearly a, a strong sense uh, of injustice manifesting from different uh, facets of the Irish community in Scotland uh, and Celtic supporters as, as a dynamic of that were obviously um, at, the, at the forefront of some of the debates and discussions going on, but it was a much more general point around about um, you know, making something a criminal act within one context that isn't a criminal act within another context, which further clouded um, you know, our challenge with our, our challenge to taking forward some of the hate crime issues which exist in Scotland with regards to the overwhelming issue or the significant issue of racially aggravated hate crime which, are, which ourselves and other colleagues within the race quality sector highlighted the Offensive Behaviour Act um, created a further confusion around it. So obviously the uh, issue of sectarianism uh, has been very contentious in Scotland, even how you define it, how you speak about it. Mm-hmm. The Scottish Government are now planning um, to, to, to find a redefinition of sectarianism in the wake of the repeal of the Offensive Behaviour at Football Act. What do you think um, is the best way to, to, I guess, firstly define it and then secondly attempt to address this, this problem that, that has been talked about in Scotland for, for decades? Yeah, our concern with the you know the broad concept of sectarianism um, was that it was it was dragging things in uh, to a discussion which we wouldn't consider necessarily to be uh, expressions of sectarianism, as I touched upon earlier. From the Irish community's perspective, that included very basic um, expressions of Irish identity, such as the Irish tricolour, or so on and so forth, which quite clearly aren't uh, sectarian. Um, when we had been having discussions, so I think we, we outlined this uh, in verbal submission to the Justice Committee and in our written submission to the Justice Committee, we had been approached by FOCUS, which is the was the Football Coordination Unit for Scotland, with regards to the concerns they had around about um, commemorations that may take place at football games uh, in relation to the decade of Centennials. Now, the decade of Centennials was... Uh, um, a, 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 sorry, a, a campaign of recognition which was suppressed by uh, the Irish government covering, you know, the 1916 rebellion into um, the Irish Wars of Independence. It also included seminal dates for people of uh, a unionist uh, background, so like the Battle of the Somme and the signing of the Ulster Covenant. And our basic point to Police Scotland with regards to all of those components that none of them were inherently sectarian and that to celebrate a Scottish or a British or an Irish cultural or social or political identity in Scotland, be that a football game or out with a football game, uh, should not be um, the focus of the criminal justice system. Uh, and we would continue to maintain that. Now, where there is where there's a hate crime aggravation, i.e. Um, you express hatred towards someone because of their religion or their race or their sexual orientation, that's relatively simple to identify and define and is covered by various uh, hate crime aggravations which exist within Scots law at the moment. So what we don't want to do is see... Um, you know, expressions of cultural identity which are non-discriminatory uh, consumed into a sort of really lazy, ill-informed debate about sectarianism, which actually, you know, undermines its own intention of raising awareness within communities about the different dynamics of the people who live in Scotland in 2018. In, in terms of the organisation, um, you work and obviously you support 
various kind of diaspora groups represent various um, immigrant groups um, and and identities um, within Scotland. What are the biggest issues when it comes to, you raised the point of hate crime there, um, what are the communities that are most adversely affected, if you like, um, by racism, by um, bigotry, by these forms of discrimination, and and if these are still very prevalent, how, um, how are they best addressed? Yeah, I mean, we're always important to, it's, I know it's maybe playing about semantics, but it's an important distinction is that we don't represent anybody, uh, any particular community organisation or community in Scotland. We will raise awareness of their interests and of our membership. But the only communities, the only people who are um, capable of um, advocating or coherently outlining what issues are which affect them in their community are the individuals and the you know, communities themselves. There's a lot of diversity within communities. So we have to be very careful not to, you know, feel that if you speak to one individual or or, or one in the commons community leader that you somehow uh, then are speaking to that whole community and that's potentially part of the issue which has been missed within uh, the dynamic of debate and sectarianism in Scotland. Um, and, and, and developing these sort of either uh, soft law working definitions which the advisory group did before or whatever we're going into now. Um, with regards to the st- statistical identification of hate crime aggravations in Scotland, racially aggravated hate crime is by far, uh, by far and away the largest aggravation within Scotland. I think over, I think over the duration of the Offensive Behaviour Act, it was over 20,000 uh, racially aggravated hate crime charges. So obviously there's, you know, there's a significant amount of work still to be done there. With regards to sectarianism, when you look at the specifics in terms of the charges, uh, where, where the, the focus of the religious denomination within uh, sectarian hate crime, again, every year since the evolution, the vast majority of those um, hate crimes have been uh, directed towards people of the Catholic faith. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that you know there are instances uh, and situations and issues with regards to what is identified within the hate crimes that's anti-Protestantism and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Um, but we would say that in order to identify the locus of where those crimes are taking place, in order to develop a coherent strategy, in order to take that forward, we should identify each specific issue in itself. Uh, and that in itself would allow us to have a much clearer picture and a much more nuanced debate in Scotland about what the prevailing issues are. There's a broader issue here about, um, you know, is it the is it the responsible is it the sole responsibility of the criminal justice system, uh, i.e., the police and the courts, to progress social change? Um, you know, we're not again convinced that the, the full responsibility in terms of having an open and transparent debate about the sort of Scotland that we want to live in in 2018 and moving into the future should take place primarily within the criminal justice system. Um, we have to have, you know, uh, opportunities for people to uh, essentially express their cultural identities in Scotland and feel that they are respected and part of a much broader. Uh, inclusive national identity. We do a significant amount of work with um, other communities across Scotland in order to take that forward, and we work very proactively with the Scottish government and and other areas with regards to that. Around about the few years of the Scottish Winter Festivals, it's just this sectarianism and very commas issue, um, which seems to be. It seems to be a, you know, slightly more, a slightly different tact in terms of taking it forward and it seems to unfortunately has happened in the past until the current, until the present 
any time there and the domain of criminal justice and, and you know we're not necessarily convinced that that's that's the best way to take those conversations forward well, Danny Boyle, um, thanks for joining us, for sharing your, your insight there, and, and best of luck with, with Venus and, and all the work that you guys do. No bother, Liam. Thanks very much. back to part two of Acting Up the Fans Against Criminalisation podcast that was Danny Boyle from Beamish Scotland talking to me a little bit earlier um, about what the future is um, for tackling sectarianism in Scotland and the way that is defined um, let's stick to that discussion just now Andrew, we had a little bit there from Danny, his thoughts on that issue obviously um, sectarianism in, in Scotland is something that is very contested, um, it's a very loaded term as well, what do you think the most effective way to say define it is and then to go about actually tackling some of the root causes I think I would look very carefully about whether the word sectarianism is a helpful word Um, there was a very good essay a week or so ago from Professor Tom Devine in the Sunday Herald which gave us a a sense of perspective what he described were the changes that have taken place in Scottish society over the last 20, 30, 40 years from a time when a generation earlier in the 1930s the Church of Scotland actively supported discrimination in the workplace Uh, they urged shipbuilders and engineers and dare I say it police uh, to employ native sons. Well, what you're really talking about here is a legacy of anti-Irish racism. Now, as Professor Devine pointed out, we don't experience that in the same way. I've never felt discriminated against in any workplace because I'm a Catholic, but that's what shapes the current debate. We're not talking about an equality. We're not talking about people being mean to each other. We're talking about forces that have shaped Scottish society and how we come to terms with that legacy of anti-Irishness and anti-Catholicism. And like Jeanette, obviously that brings up some, Andrew's raised some kind of uh, issues about the context in which we talk about this. Now we know the Scottish Government's next steps, one of the next steps is to look to define or redefine mm-hmm. sectarianism and law. Do you think they are going to take into account some of those historical issues? Well, no, I mean they should, but I don't think that they will because all of the all of our experience of this and all of the history of this is that um, they're only interested in sectarianising, if I can use that horrible word, Irish identity. So part of it, and this is all mixed up in all of the stuff around the Act, so they want to talk about, um, they don't want to talk about, you know, anti-Catholic bigotry, and there is still anti-Catholic bigotry, and you're right to make a distinction between nasty words and structural discrimination and inequality. You're absolutely right to make a distinction between that, and all they're focused on is nasty words as opposed to the, the reason why it is that you know there's a higher than proportionate number of Catholics in prison, higher proportionate Catholics who are in you know um, uh, poorer areas, and all 
all of those kinds of discussions. Let's address those things um, uh, rather than, you know, did somebody call somebody a Fenian, whatever it is, you know. So that, those are the things that really matter and they don't want to talk about them because they're much uh, more difficult to fix. So when you come back to talk about, and even if you talk about the equalities groups, and obviously we had a very poor experience with some of the equalities groups during this campaign because we had equalities groups who were willing to come and tell lies in front of Scottish Parliament and just as a, a pal to their Scottish Government fund, just as a favour to their Scottish Government uh, funders or their pals in Scottish Government. So they were willing to come and even the day it was the day the Act was repealed, you had somebody for I think Stonewall Scotland saying, "Oh, you know, this is really bad because you know um, the LGBT." community will be less safe and there's just no evidence for that and people are just wheeled out to say things with no evidence so the equalities groups don't actually address any of this because if you were to go and speak to them and I'm sure Danny would tell you this as well if you want to speak to them about um anti-Irish racism, they say, no, 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 that's about that sectarianism. You think, no, 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 that's anti-Irish racism. And they, they just mix all this stuff. And this latest venture, where you've got the Scottish Government's favourite Irish academic, uh, Duncan Morrow, who's heading a working group to, to talk about defining the word sectarianism. I mean, that's a joke. They've had an anti-sectarian policy for I don't know how long, and they've decided now they want to define what it is. Is that no about arse about face, really? <laughs> so they're going to have this thing, and I think the worry for us, not going on about this, but the worry for us, and we need to keep an eye on this, and we need to have our hands all over it, because it's the same usual suspects, and Paul, I'm sure, will tell you who they are, but who want to just redefine this word to capture the things they don't like. So it's it's the Offensive Behaviour Act, you know, part two, the next story, what will we do next to try and capture the things that we don't like, but actually on any view are not in any way close to bigotry or hate crime. Like, like Paul to, to bring you in on this as well like these on quite nuanced arguments as well there's not like you're talking about historical factors you're talking about structural factors that, that have led us to the situation which we're in today in, in Scottish society and, and why some uh, expressions of identity are less welcome um, or have less of a home in Scottish society than others what if the Scottish government aren't going to address this um, in the latest um policies and initiatives but what is the best way to try and address this in Scotland well I think there has to be first of all an acceptance of the, the issues that we've spoken about there has to be a willingness to have the kind of nuanced discussion but that's not what we have what we've seen uh, in the last couple of weeks is we've you know seen uh, kind of more drum beating towards more authoritarian approaches uh, that will be catch-alls um, to include as has been uh, suggested expressions of Irish identity now in the kind of aftermath of the repeal bill, uh, you know, what we've seen is um, Jeanette and I were talking earlier that there were you know, quite a few reports in the media about this attempt to define sectarianism. Every single one of them uh, was accompanied by a photograph of Celtic fans, Rangers fans or a mixture of both. Every single one of them. Another one is, you know, one of the people who have been back in the media after, you know, a seven year silence on some of these issues is Dave Scott, uh, the head of Nil by Mouth. This is a guy who hasn't said one solitary word about this legislation in public. Now, I know for a fact that he's sat behind 
um, you know, he, he sat and spoke to his students and stuff like that and told them how, you know, how he disagreed with the act and how he could see the damage that was being done. But this is a guy who's headed up Scotland's biggest anti-sectarian charity campaigning group, whatever, however they might define themselves. And he has stood back and he's watched working class men, young men in Scotland, be harassed, be victimised and be criminalised. And he has had nothing to say about it because he's not wanted to, I would assume, risk the funding that he receives from the Scottish government. That's shameful. He should be utterly ashamed of himself. Um, but it's, 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 you know, it's symptomatic of the kind of stuff that we've seen happen uh, with some of these equalities groups. Um, I've always said is that sectarianism and debate around sectarianism and bigotry in Scotland is mm-hmm. far more than a 90-minute problem, though. Yeah, well, I mean, but again, though, like, what you'll see is with, with Dave Scott is that when an issue pops up like this, he is the first one that they go to and he'll wheel out, you know, a kind of rent a quote will be at the bottom. Dave, you can all, you can set your watch to it, Dave Scott. Yeah, as I say, when the debate raged on about the government's flagship anti-sectarian policy and there, there could have been a kind of voice that would have been reasonable middle of the road, you know, funded by the Scottish government, supported by the Scottish government in a lot of ways, but, you know, who evidently knew the damage that was being done um, and he could have been, you know, a, 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 a voice that could have brought a bit more, you know, reason to the debate when it was badly needed at times and he said not a single word. But here he is again trying to pick up the pieces um, to, uh, I, I don't know if it's to assert, um, try and secure more funding or whatever it is, but it, it's it's shameful. Um, and I think that for much of our community that um, the faith in these kind of groups and these kind of <coughs> bodies and these kind of um, ventures is just uh, nil. I, th- I think that I think a good analogy for that I mean you're saying that sometimes he did say things which were you know Either. right that you could agree with but I think a very good analogy with that is you remember at the very beginning of all this there was a lot of talk about what this was about was about domestic violence <laughs> lots of talk about this lots of stuff about you know oh, you know the spike figures and all the dodgy statistics and all of that right and what happened was the women's groups the you know um, women's aid and other groups stood up and said no hang on a wee minute this is a much more complicated problem than this this is not about football there is no evidence to suggest that that's the case there is no evidence you know to suggest there's a link between sport and domestic violence or we're not even prepared to blame alcohol for domestic violence as a sort of intermediate. So they, they stood up and said, no, 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 this is a much more complicated problem than this and we're not going to let you use that very com- you know, serious matter as a way to have a kick at football fans. Mm-hmm. Dave Scott could have done that, Aye. but he didn't. If we swing it back... If we look at what's happened in the news this week, proposals coming from West Bromwich Albion to introduce safe standing at the Hawthorns thrown out. Look back over the, the season that's passed. Um, Stevenage, of all places, um, accused by fans of Grimsby. Imagine a you know a, a profile, you know the, the old farm game of uh, of England, Stevenage versus Grimsby, and the Grimsby Mariners Trust, the Supporters Association, saying that. On the way into the ground, children as young as five being subjected to full body searches. Um, Scandals. Reported in the press that female supporters being asked to show their bras to security uh, guards. Absolutely 
outrageous. And, you know, an example that the problems we see in football are far greater than Scotland. But what's happened in Scotland is fans have found a voice yeah. and they've taken on this culture and won a victory. And um, regardless of what equalities groups do and which equalities groups do, the great thing that's come out of this campaign, you don't need other people to speak for you now. Yeah, that's true. Yes, absolutely. And I think, yeah, even on that, we touched a little bit earlier on um, the Hillsborough campaign. Mm -hmm, um, some of them, um, indeed people um, involved in the campaign, people who were at Hillsborough, families of victims were up at Celtic Park looking at yep. the standing section um, last week off their own backs essentially um, and, yeah. and are looking at other examples um, of fans who have taken action and, and that was essentially due to fan pressure I think we should point out that the standing section has brought in at Celtic Park mm -hmm. um, so hopefully as you mentioned Andrew we're going to see more and more collaboration um, from football fans um, just on I guess this like the point of how much uh, what, what the Scottish Government are looking to do in terms of this sectarianism review is that something that FAC would potentially um, look to be involved in? Do you expect any involvement from FAC in it? Um, or, or how do you see that going forward? Well, I mean, I don't know that FAC uh, as a body would be involved because obviously we were set up as a, a kind of single issue campaign. Um, I'd imagine that myself and Jeanette and others personally might follow it with interest. Um, and where it goes, you know, we'll, we'll see. I wouldn't want to, um, you know, look too far into the future. But obviously, we're waiting on the, the Brackadale review as well. And, you know, we don't really know what's going to come out of that. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, this attempt to define or, or redefine would probably be a better way to describe it sectarianism. Um, you know, you don't know. It's, you don't know how far that's going to go, or what it's likely to lead to. You know, James Dornan still trying to punt like the, the strict liability. I don't think that's likely to go anywhere. I don't think that's getting any. Sad to hear that he had dropped out of the deputy leadership. I was, oh, I know you I was I know devastated. That I was, I was yeah. uh, devastated. I loved his excuse, but who didn't? He may have been sad. Who, <laughs> he dropped out uh, when he was told he was dropping. I mean, yeah. he could have just uh, of all the things that he could have said about why he was the lot. Literally, I mean, we're speaking about it earlier, literally anything that he could have come up with would have been better than um, you know, going to don the uh, moral cape and I'm going to fight against uh, the evil scourge of sectarianism. It's laughable um, but one of the things about this we talk about the campaign, one of the things we've probably been quite lucky with is that, you know, for large parts of it, John Mason and then James Dornan were the kind of face of what we were up against and uh, we could always rely on them to make crazy statement and behave in daft ways and uh, Dornan's done oh, it right up man, to the... What do you call your man? What do you call the guy who used to be the Justice Minister? Oh, oh yeah, Wheelhouse. Wheelhouse, aye, he was... Uh, no, I'm talking about the other one. Oh, Kenny. <laughs> we've, we've made a lot of friends over the course of this uh, uh, campaign so it's, it's hard to remember but um, in terms of you know, us following it, I guess it's just a case of waiting and seeing the internet. I mean, I think, I think Paul's right. I don't think FAC as FAC will be involved in that discussion because it's, it's not appropriate for it as a single issue campaign and, and other people might. What I think's more worrying is I think it's unlikely that any uh, expression of the Irish community, any of its organisations, any of its bodies will actually be invited because they've never been consulted by the Scottish Government on any of this. I mean, even in terms of the Act, which was like if you were having an equality, I'm Packed assessment, which I'm sure you have to do for every piece of legislation. One of the things you would would have done was to try and speak to the community that would have been impacted by it, and they didn't do that. 
they did not speak to the Irish community, and they, and I think it's likely that they'll do this again. You know, we are the, the Irish community and the Catholic community that crosses over to some extent, although not completely. Mm-hmm. Um, is are the biggest victims of you know mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of religious aggravated assaults and, and things like that? For me, that's actually but, one you know, of the don't get consulted. For me, that's one of the main lessons of the, the offensive behaviour. Like, take away the the Irish aspect of it, but the fact that the government enforced this legislation on a community in terms of football fans mm-hmm. without consulting them or considering their views mm-hmm. that is absolutely the. Um, opposite of what a government should be doing, uh, and that's what came back to bite them in the backside. And, and you know, if they do, if they pursue it, other things in the same way, then the same thing will happen. I think that's absolutely right. And to me, one of the great lessons of this campaign is that fans need a formal voice in the way that the game is governed. And um, I remember when Chelsea played Bayern Munich in the European Cup final back in 2012 writing about this as a clash of football and cultures. Here you had Chelsea, the team of Russian Abramovich and half a dozen Tory cabinet ministers. And in Germany they have a, a rule that no one individual is allowed to own a club. Fans have got a, a much bigger voice in the way their clubs are run. And what does that mean? Well, it means they've got safe standing areas. It means that tickets are much cheaper. Um, at the time, I looked, the cheapest season ticket at Chelsea was £595. Now, to their credit, because I checked this afternoon, six years later, it's still £595. But Bayern Munich was €120, Euros, less than £100. When you give fans a voice in the way the game is run, then it operates better for the supporters. And, you know, as we all know, football fans are the lifeblood of any club. And I'm quite sure that had fans been given a voice in this legislation, had there been a real consultation process, this campaign shouldn't have been necessary. Mm-hmm. So we need to stop looking to England and comparing ourselves against England. The uh, German journalist Ulrich Hesse said, you know, through the 70s and 80s, German football fans tried to copy English fans. It's not just the Scots that did this. Now they go to games in England and come back and say, we have to make sure this isn't going to happen in Germany. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to kind of have a look around and say, how do we make our game better and it's not south of the border that provides any kind of a model for us. Actually I think fans south of the border are looking to Scotland and say hey look what's happened up there, maybe we could copy them. Yeah I think that's absolutely the case but particularly as we go back to that safe standing thing, I have seen a discussion about that and saying you know it is possible if you get together, if you go about it the right way if you use all of the talent that's in amongst you just, you know you can just say right we need somebody to do something and there'll be somebody who can do that you know and they just appear and that's, that, you know you're absolutely I hear you made your debut in the safe standing section the other week. I did <laughs> I did. How was, did you I enjoy was, that? I was invited over and had to sort of clamber my way up onto the capo stand and very much. Well, the only problem for me was that, um, you know, as you know, I've just come off a quite a long period on the picket line mm-hmm. where I spent a lot of time jumping up and down sort of University Avenue with a megaphone, shouting and bawling. And uh, it turned out that the following week at my work, somebody says to me, well, I, I, I sat near that area and I looked down and I saw you a megaphone. You're on. I thought, what is it with that woman in megaphones? <laughs> you just turned her one and she just starts. It's like a Pavlovian response. You know, just get a megaphone and she'll start. <laughs> Oh, um, and just on that, so in terms of the, the UCU as well, can we expect to see you on the picket lines after this, Jeanette, or is that...? Ah, well, now, we're, uh, at the moment, we're ballot, being balloted on a, 
on a, a suspending action to proceed to negotiations or the valuations. It's a bit boring, but basically, we'll, we'll, if we agree to that, we'll step back and there'll be some negotiations. And at the end of that, there'll be some discussion about whether there are any holes in the fund and if there is, who's going to pay for it. At that point, we might most likely be back out again if there, if there is any suggestion that there'll be any detriment what I can guarantee people is we will not stand up to any detriment to the pension because you know we're a, a relatively well in some ways we're a relatively well off group of workers although we're actually got one of the biggest casualised workforces in, in, in the country um, but we um you know, if we let a good pension scheme go, then, you know, nobody else has got a chance. We have to defend that, and that's what we will be doing. So, yes, it's very likely that I will be back on University Avenue with my megaphone, fresh set of batteries. <laughs> Brilliant. I think just for listeners, obviously, it's like these, these campaigns and the people involved in a lot of these campaigns are all linked, essentially. It's about people coming together and organising and showing that they can defend, whether it be wage cuts, whether it be police persecution um, or whatnot. Now, but to, I guess to kind of round things off obviously this has been um a six-part mini-series um i think there's been highs and lows throughout the uh, throughout the, the the six or seven years of the campaign um as well against the offensive behavior of football act can we just do the rounds of each one maybe pick out um a particular highlight um a particular kind of memorable incident um, that have happened through this it can be uh, it can be funny it doesn't have to relate to James Don and Paul but if you want then, then you can best. as well <laughs> uh, we'll start with, with you Andrew maybe is it is a one one moment or one one time throughout the, the period of the campaign that you thought has been particularly of particular significance I'd just be kind of really poignant now and say that this has been a fantastic victory um like any campaign, I think what you've shown is that when you engage people and you get them involved, we discover talents that we don't know we have, and that's great to see. Um, just going back through my notes this afternoon um, and looking at you know the conversation I'd had with George Ryan at the beginning of this, it's also quite a good moment just to remember the people that were involved here right at the beginning, and you know it's their victory too. And yourself, Paul, as a I know it's difficult to pin down one, uh, one moment. It's, been, it's obviously period, it, it went on for so long. Um, but one of what I would say is that you know Andrew obviously followed uh, or reported on the the Gallagher incident. You know when we really seen police Scotland that they're most violent, that they're most kind of thuggish. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, we what we done was we organised the demonstration at, at George Square, and that was a special day for me for like a number of reasons. First of all the sheer volume of people that turned out it was quite humbling to be honest to, to see the kind of support we had to see it kind of manifest itself in that way um, and you know like we were talking earlier about you know and the kind of running up to that Jeanette was kind of dealing with the police to some extent um, you know and there was a bit of negotiation but we were basically saying you know that we're going to be having this demonstration we're not asking permission but we're having this uh, standing demonstration and George Square adds is our democratic right um, and then you know the vast majority of people will likely be going to see Celtic we're playing at home that day um, and should they decide to disperse in that way they'll all likely walk to the ground together so um, and Jeanette was on the phone to like one of the, the police officers and she's saying look all we want is to get people to the demo and then get them safely up to Celtic Park uh, and the 
police officer was like, oh yeah, that's what we really want, we want to, we want to keep everybody safe. And Jeanette went, I, I meant safe for you, which uh, <laughs> was kind of typified our relationship with them at the time. But when, when it actually got to that point, um, you know, when we, because you'd been speaking and stuff like that, so the idea was that a few of us would kind of lead the march up there. We can get, I admit it now, I guess. And uh, so it kind of, we went down with by like Merchant City and stuff like that. And then you get to that point where you turn left onto the Gallagate. Um, it was maybe 100 or so yards from where the initial kind of confrontation had happened a few weeks ago. And I remember uh, kind of being at the front of it and thinking, you know, we're going to be turning around here and there's going to be 300 robo cops and it's going to be a possibility of, of an issue again. Uh, and then when, you know, we turned left and there was no police officers in sight and we'd seen that, you know, we'd won that particular victory, they knew that they were on the wrong and they wanted to stay as far away from as as they possibly could. Um, and I think walking up past, you know, some of the areas where there have been those flashpoints, but, you know, rather than facing, a, uh, you know, 200 coppers, there wasn't a police in sight and we had thousands and thousands of people supporting us. And there was a real poignancy to that um, that probably stayed with us throughout the campaign. Um, and, you know, helped push us on, I think, to mm. bigger and better things. And as for yourself, Jeanette? Well, I'll give you a, a serious one and then maybe a, a less serious one. The serious one, I mean, there's lots of things we could pick out and lots of times, obviously, that March the 15th when the f- that vote went through was obviously really important. But I would also remind, remember something that happened uh, in relation to the Gallagate and it was about one of the people who were ar- arrested and this was a young guy who was just arrested for, basically because he was filming it. Yeah. And the polls come up and told him to get to F and he said, no, I'm no. So the guy just grabbed him, flung him in the back of a van, took him down to whatever, I think it was um, the one down at Hamden, was it? The right. police station down at Hamden, they took him to and, and and that was it. And when he arrived, they said to him, oh, the death sergeant's like, what's he been charged with? And the, the, the polls who were there at the time didn't know. And so they decided they would offer him. Now, this was a guy in the fourth year of an apprenticeship, you know, a guy with no previous convictions, but a young guy, never been in any trouble, fourth year of an apprenticeship. And they said to him, eh, right, oh, we'll just give you a, a fixed penalty, which would have been, you know, he would have paid 50 quid or 60 quid he bought to be. And he said to them, no, no. He said, I didn't do anything wrong. You did something wrong. You're going to have to take me to court. And that boy was taken to court, I would say, maybe five, six times. He forced two police officers, because they then had to make up a story as to why they had arrested him. Um, And he forced these two uh, police officers to stand there and make complete fools of themselves where they were lying through their teeth. It was the most embarrassing thing. It was so bad that the fiscal had to ask the sheriff to ask this police officer to warn them that he was in danger of perjuring himself. And that boy stood there and he stood up to that hour about 13, 14 months and he was there at the end and when they found him not guilty, I have to say that was a really special moment for me and I was dead proud of him and I just thought it was amazing that he did that. So well done, Scott. You know who I'm talking about. Now, the other one, which is funnier, is um, I understand that on the 15th, um, uh, the previous incumbent of Annabelle Ewan's chair, Paul Wheelhouse, who had previously um, said some ludicrous things, you know, told lies about us in, in, in a statement to the House, said that we'd agreed we sacro scheme when we had and then said, well, we knew we didn't agree with it, but 
I think you should, so that's why I said it, you know, some madness like that. Anyway, when the vote went through, and this is the bit I don't understand, because he should have known it was going through, right? But when the vote went through, apparently he got up and did a big flouncy, huffy thing and started shouting at the opposition M MSPs, you know, you better never forget this. We'll never let you forget this. And he went away and I don't know, had a wee cry in a cupboard or something like that. But that makes me laugh because I think... I won't say this because it would be rude, but you know really what I'm saying, you know, like G-I-R-U-Y, you know, I just think, just really, you know, that's what you can do, Paul Wheelhouse, and I hope you're listening. But uh, see, one of the things I'll just come on to finish is that if you're talking about the Gallagate, I always remember one of the stories, like a few of the guys had been arrested and put in like the same kind of bus or van or whatever it was, and um, one of the police officers turned around and said, like, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, I don't know why he's a bother, like, people, um, you know, were cracking up about having to wear seatbelts, uh, but they came to accept it, and you just learn to accept this. And mm -hmm. we've not accepted it, we've no. fought it, and we've fought it, and we've fought it. Um, and we've well, I, I wear my seatbelt, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the comparison he made, and, and again, it gets back to the fact that they just expected us to roll over. They expected the boy you were talking about to just roll over, paying that 50, 60 quid, and never hear about it again. And he never did, and we never did. Um, and Fortunately, we've come out on top. We fought the law and we won. <laughs> and I'm sure on behalf of everyone listening, um, can just kind of pay, and everyone involved in this, pay gratitude once again to, to Paul and Jeanette for, for everything that they've they've done. Um, but I guess above and beyond that, there's been so many other people as well, which I'm sure Paul and Jeanette would be the first to recognise, um, from the people working in production on this podcast who haven't um, mm. worked through without this. Absolutely. Would, would not have been possible yeah. um, at all uh, without their expertise that we've had the easy part of coming on and chatting. I think my career's downhill after this, but we'll see, we'll see about that. <laughs> that Liam O'Hare's podcast, and it's no his podcast. <laughs> Well, what people don't realise is the amount of takes I have to get, get something right, but I've managed to keep that keep that quiet. And obviously, the guest from Andrew today in particular, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a and everyone else who's who's joined us, um, from Ross Greer to Michael yep. McMahon, I think, mm -hmm. who was on the first one. Um, a massive thanks to all of them. As you see, the guys have been amazing. I've had to put up with listening to us for what must be like seven hours or something like that now, over that amount of time. Um, and thanks to yourself, Ian, for uh, hosting it. And hopefully it's kind of attractive. The people can start to finish and we can all be proud of it. And just to finish off, thank you to the listeners who've uh, put up with us for the past um, <laughs> past number of weeks and months and have shared it online. Hopefully you can share this one as well. And I'm sure at some stage um, when something comes up, we might be back again uh, for a, a special edition or, or who knows what not. But for now, thanks for listening um, and we'll look forward to seeing you again. Okay.